Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest today is Ed Hallen. Ed is the co-founder and current chief product officer at Clavio, a leading customer data and marketing automation platform for e-commerce, whose most recent private valuation was around $10 billion. If that's not enough, after moving to Boulder, Ed decided to also start another company, Team Engine, a text-first HR and operations platform for industrial SMBs. Prior to both of these companies, Ed held roles in Applied Predictive Technologies, Google, and Excel KKR, and received his MBA from MIT. Ed, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Hey, excited to be here. Awesome. Well, we'd love to hear what you've been up to. I know you've got uh, your hands in a couple companies, including one that's uh, going exceptionally well. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So bulk of my time is spent as the chief product officer of Clavio. Clavio, it's a company I founded in 2012. I'm on the board, run all things uh, to their product. The, the basic story of Clavio is we help e-commerce stores grow. Like what that really means, what we really do is, you know, really three things. One, we have a data layer that combines all the information that stores have, kind of everything customers have and haven't ever done, the, the first party data that businesses have collected. Two, a marketing and messaging application that sits on top. And then three, a layer of intelligence that sits on top of everything. Um, but we work with kind of hundreds of thousands of e-commerce stores and drive, you know, run the marketing messaging that drives their growth. Uh, in addition to that, I've started a separate business, uh, Team Engine, which uh, we help Bucar businesses kind of find and retain great people and then spend a little bit of time kind of advising, investing in uh, mostly Colorado startups. And, and obviously, e-commerce has, has blown up and Clavio has been a, been a huge um, you know, beneficiary of, of that ecosystem. What was it like in 2012 when you were starting out and, and things were a little bit more nascent? Yeah, I mean, it was distinctly uncool. So, you know, we we were like database and tech guys. And so our background was in bringing together huge, huge sets of data. And the specific problem we set out to solve was, hey, data tends to live in in silos. And, you know, the way companies stitch it all together is largely via injecting a bunch of engineers. And we said, hey, can we build a data platform that pulls information from all these different APIs, combines it into one platform and makes that very usable? And it was only when we went looking for a way to drive a business outcome with this that we said, okay, hey, you know, e-commerce makes a lot of sense. Like we can access the data there's a bunch of businesses like just learning to grow. And if we pull all the data into one place and use our expertise, which is kind of like storing this in a very, in a low latency and kind of like high impact way, we could actually like drive those outcomes. And so at the time, like, you know, investors certainly didn't care, you know, our customers cared a lot, but there wasn't like a lot of other, other folks out there thinking about this. Shopify was small. A lot of the other old players were, you know, the Magentos of the world were kind of very old school. So I guess in retrospect, it was fun. I think like looking back at the time, it just felt like compared to all the venture-backed startups that we saw around us uh, or our friends had, it, it seemed like we were like the uncool, boring industry. Well, clearly, uh, clearly you've proven some of those early doubters wrong um, with, with the company. Um, congrats on all, all the, the success so far. What, what does the future hold for you and for, for Clavio? The future for Clavio, I mean, I think we really feel like we're on the 
first couple yard line of the the play. So our vision was always to build kind of like build this democratized data platform that lets lets companies build complete kind of customer profiles and then have the intelligence to drive business outcomes. And we always viewed this as a you know, e-commerce was kind of like step one, but we really thought like, hey, by 2014, we'll be working with businesses of all types. But, you know, the reality is like e-commerce has grown a ton and we've grown a ton, but we're still in early days. And I, and I think we're really excited about continuing to take the same approach of, of basically using data to build software that drives outcomes. And we think about this as easy buttons. Like what you really want in software is that you hit an easy button and you get the result you want. And hey, maybe you want to tinker with the settings there, but you don't want to spend all this time learning new software and figure out how to do what it does. You just want it to do things that you could never do as a person. And so I think that vision, we have a lot of room to run at that vision for a long time. Cool. So Ed, would love to talk a bit about Colorado. So I think you've been here in Colorado for about five or six years and would love to hear, you know, why did you come here and how have you seen the tech ecosystem evolve over the last five or six years since you've been here? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I first came here actually largely driven by my wife. So so we, uh, in the early days of Clavio, we met, I was living in Boston where I started the company. She was living in uh, outside San Francisco in Palo Alto. And once she finished up grad school, we were looking for a place for her largely to start a company. And I hated the Boston winners, uh, definitely was not eager to stay in Boston. And we ended up coming to Colorado initially because the one of the early investors she was working with invited her to be an entrepreneur in residence as she was launching a software company. And so came expecting to stay two to three months and settled in Boulder, lived on in one house on a street downtown. You know, after two months, we said, hey, let's stay another two months. We actually moved across the street. Two months later, we said, hey, you know, actually, let's stay six more months. And then we bought the house across the street and said, hey, let's just stay here forever. And so, you know, I think as we settled in, I think the things we loved about Colorado is like, first, you know, just hard to argue with your time outside work is incredible. I think second, the type of people who are in Colorado are one, people who are more humble, are not super work focused, but are focused on like doing ambitious things. And so just found it really to be a fit. And then as I thought about, you know, career building companies, like those fit really well and were pretty different in pronounced ways versus a New York, Boston, or San Francisco. So in terms of changes, it's a great question. You know, I think so far, you know, like for a lot of it, I've been pretty heads down, you know, both starting a company on the side and also growing Klaviyo. I think the biggest thing that that I've seen is, you know, if you take a company like Klaviyo that we historically were very Boston focused. Over time, we, you know, opened an office in London. We were opening offices in different parts of the world. I think now though, you know, we're seeing, there's actually just a lot of our employees who are in Colorado. And like, it's not like that, wouldn't have been true before COVID, but all of a sudden people, when they are kind of, you break the shackles and they can live wherever they want, like people do choose to live in Colorado. And so it's, it's fun to, you know, I can both invest in building companies in Colorado, but at the same time, like there's no limitation to, to, you know, running Clavio and, and being here. And in fact, seeing more and more that employees are here too. Yeah. A lot of similarities, Ed. We, we moved here largely because of my wife as well. And I never want to experience a Chicago winter ever again either. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, Chris. I've been in a Boston winter too, a Chicago winter. It's tough to say which is worse. Yeah. I, I wonder yeah. Which, which is worse. I, I distinctly remember before I moved to the West Coast and then here walking from the L to the office in Chicago. And you know those, those bank signs that show the time and the temperature, right? And it flashed negative seven degrees. And I was like, never again. Right. Got to oh. get out. 
Yeah, and, and nothing. That wind coming off the lake is just the worst in Chicago. So exactly, not a competition you want to be even a be even in. So yeah. uh, I think it's Colorado winter is great. There's like both good stuff to do when it's really cold, and then half the time you have great sunshine. So yeah. uh, I don't understand why everyone doesn't live here, but I do hope. I think like everyone else who's already in Colorado that you know not everyone else in the world doesn't discover the secret. As we yeah. sit here, as we sit here today on the heels of you know sixty degree days in December. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so Ed, lots to choose from, but any particularly companies in, in Colorado that you're excited about right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I'd get in a lot of trouble if I didn't say uh, my wife's company. So they're a insurance company called Odyssey Energy. They build software to help African nations develop mini grids. So in communities where the grid hasn't yet expanded, they help kind of figure out where to put those mini grids, how to size them. And then, you know, at scale, if you're a country like Nigeria, to how do you build the next 30,000 of these power grids and electrify Africa? So it's cool because, you know, I think it's massive global impact. And I think the cool thing about Colorado is that like you have expertise in, in those types of things. You have all sorts of people who are here and kind of driving this ch- like global change, but, but from Colorado. Cool. So Ed, let's jump into to why we're here. We'd love to hear what your biggest lesson has been as you've built and scaled startups and how you learned it. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think uh, cynically, I would say one thing I, I've learned is that it's a path full of misery and pain and is a terrible career choice that I also like, can't imagine doing anything else. So that's you know, probably not the best answer, but it's certainly true is that it's just incredibly rewarding and something that I think is and a great way to have an impact and also just a fun way to spend your time. But, you know, I think there are individual moments and days where you're like, I can't believe I'm, you know, like, why did I get this letter from New York state that tells me that I'm out of compliance with some law that I've never heard of? And like this, I'm really spending my time on hold for two hours. No, I, you know, I think, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned, you know, probably goes back to the the question about like, oh, what was e-commerce like in 2012, which is, you know, at the time for us, like it was really hard to conceive of what the future could hold. Like, you know, envisioning a company where we had a couple thousand employees and growing very fast and, you know, kind of huge teams who could kind of overcome all obstacles. Like when it was two of us for, it was two of us for the first three years of the business. And I think for a lot of that time, like we were incredibly focused on just saying, hey, let's find people who have a problem. We will solve that problem for them. And if we do a good job, they'll pay us. And so for us, that problem was e-commerce stores. We knew their number one problem was wanting to grow. And we knew if we could deliver on that promise, they would gladly pay us. And that really simplified the whole thing. We weren't focused on some grandiose vision. We weren't focused on slide decks. We weren't focused on just spending our time getting to know investors or going to startup events. We were just focused on that problem. I think at the time, that felt like a, a an approach that really fit us. And it really felt like a low-risk way to start a business because we just deeply believed that like, you know, even if that business was small, like solving people's problems was rewarding and something where they would pay you. The lesson though, I think is that I think ultimately that's what let us build a, build a like fast growing large business was kind of having that approach versus doing the things we saw a lot of other folks focus on in terms of, you know, focusing on like a painting a, a picture of a grander vision and an idea. And so I think the lesson, you know, like the probably the encapsulated lesson here is like, just find a problem, solve it. And you'll like from those customer learnings, being very customer driven and customer first, you'll learn enough to then build the business you want to over time. And you can really do that in a lower risk way for you, for yourself. And so Ed, I, I imagine that, that makes a lot of sense, but I imagine though, as you guys were sort of 
focused on that one problem and even going all the way back, you know, 2012 or 2013, you know, cause you were focused just on e-commerce too, which wasn't, you know, sort of nearly the, the growth category it is today. Did you get a lot of pressure from other people to think bigger or go broader? And, and how did you guys stay focused on your vision as opposed to, well, if you just do X, you can expand your TAM and, and then I'll invest in you or something like that. I, I imagine a lot of those conversations happened at the time when you were growing, but you guys stuck to your guns and executed. Yeah, I think we got two types of pressure. So, you know, one type of pressure was from other, just everyone we knew, which was to really not to pivot, which was like, hey, their pressure was, hey, like, tell me what you're doing. Like, tell me a story and then make that story consistent and don't change that story. And I think our approach was like, hey, no, like, we're going to keep trying new things and figuring out like exactly what this is. And therefore, like the story we told for a long time was constantly in flux. It was, you know, here's the problem we're solving. It wasn't like, hey, here's this like great idea we have. And what it meant is that in those first 18 months, like tons of pivoting, tons of changes in the business. And that was, you know, there's, and that was tough. Like I think, but I think for, because we didn't raise money and because we ultimately had to, to just literally pay our bills, it was very important to get people to pay us. And so it was pretty easy to kind of disregard all that and say like, hey, if I don't, like get a customer to pay me, I'm going to go and get a job. And I really would prefer to keep working on this, on this company. So that was a big one. I think there was a lot of just like soft pressure of, if you look at a lot of startups, like a lot of success, because it's, it's hard to understand what's really going on is viewed as number of employees as rounds raised. And we saw, you know, kind of like in our cohort of folks who are around us when we started, like the, the people we knew who were starting companies, you know, we saw almost pretty much everybody who, you know, started with us, like ultimately failed in some way or the other. And they, but during the process, they had all these like external indicators of success. And I think that one was tough, right? I think, I think we just like personality wise, like we were, my cover and I were very much in it together and kind of willing to just keep going. It played well to kind of like our approach, our backgrounds, like our kind of family histories. Um, and so we just did it, but it, it, definitely was just hard to do. And like, you know, I'm not sure we were just, yeah. So uh, if we'd been in it alone, I'm not sure we would have done that, but I think having at least a partner to like say, Hey, no, this is the approach and keep doing it really helped. And then the second is once you, once we got those first 10, 20, 30 customers, that also felt great. Cause then you knew you had like all these customers telling you, Hey, like I used to have this problem. I don't need more. And like, you've like really changed my day-to-day life. Um, and I know you do a lot of advising angel investing and some mentoring of, of startups. Um, how do you feel about, you know, the trend? It certainly seems to be even bigger today than it was when you were starting out of, hey, go raise a bunch of money now, paint the really big vision, figure it out after that uh, versus this kind of bottoms up approach you you took. Do you give that advice to startups? Do you gravitate towards those type of companies personally? Yeah. So I think this ultimately comes down to risk. So I think both are are good potential ways to build a company. And an entrepreneur should really think about, you know, first, like what's at their disposal and, and two, like what are the risks they're willing to bear? And so the path of raise lots of money on the back of an idea is something where I think it's much riskier for the entrepreneur because you might be wrong about that idea, but there's going to be a ton of investor pressure to stick with it. And you also might fail to raise those rounds kind of at any stage, right? Because even if you raise the seed, like then the, the A, the B, you have to 
keep on that path. And, and it rules out tons of exit outcomes as well. So if like you're up for that higher risk, I think, you know, there's certain types of companies that are just capitally intensive and, and sometimes like those you like actually are just went out and like that path actually works. So it is what it is. I think it, it also to go that path, like personal connections really help, like coming from a bunch of resources really helps, uh, being in certain industries really helps. So it's certainly something you can do. I, I think the thing I'd, I, where I really focus with a lot of entrepreneurs is like you as an entrepreneur, like have to really look out for your own interests and those are different than investors. And so the other path of like being super focused on customers and finding a problem you can solve and getting people to pay you for some real real value you've created is I think just a much less risky path. And if you think about kind of your, you know, how your life and how you spend your time, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, it can be a good thing to consider. And so I think that's, you know, ultimately the advice is I think I went through a phase where I would have said like, hey, like, I'm not sure about this, like raising tons of money path. It, it can definitely work. I think you as an entrepreneur just need to think about what you want out of it. And life is long. Like you can start a lot of different businesses. So there'll be different times where you'll want to start different ty- different types of businesses. You know, Ed, you, you hit on something that I didn't realize until I was sort of well down the journey. Like, you know, once you start raising, you know, venture money, right, and take more venture money and then more venture money, right, you sort of get on a treadmill and your life changes, right, versus the way it sounds like you built your company. Um, could you lay out, you know, some of those differences you might want to consider from sort of like a lifestyle perspective and what it means to you as a founder to choose one of those paths versus the other? Because I don't think a lot of people realize that until they get in it or they see people who made a different choice than them. Yeah. So, you know, I certainly have experienced this from, you know, from one lens, which is like how it played for us. I think the absence of, of money meant a couple things. And I think the, the first is that in the first year of the business, we were, we weren't afraid to, to pivot hard. And so, to totally change markets, to totally change what we were doing. And there was no commitment of saying, hey, we told investors we were going to build this business. And it sounded very good to six weeks, eight weeks later saying, nope, like we were wrong about that. Now we're going to move to the next one. And then six, eight weeks after that, doing that again. I think I'm not convinced we would have done that had we had investors. A second is, is, is as we actually started gaining momentum, like just not having money had very real consequences, meaning I sold a cust- if I sold a customer in Singapore, all of a sudden, like that meant that like I was providing customer support on Singapore hours. And so just quality of life, like it's just a tremendous amount of work because you're doing everything yourself. Now, the flip side is that if you do everything yourself, when it comes time to scale that company, you deeply understand every role. And so it makes it much easier to make great hires and to coach and mentor them and, and build the business that way. And so that was helpful. I, I think a, a third thing is if you think about, you know, like once hopping on that treadmill, the typical key thing that lets you raise the next round is portraying growth, not like portraying growth profitably, not portraying growth that actually has good unit economics. And so by kind of not raising money, but having to, to fund it ourselves, there was heavy, heavy pressure to build a business with great economics and therefore, where you could get leads cheaply, you could convert them cheaply, and you could get customers and deliver a ton of value, and you kept those customers without having to put dump tons of cash on it. And so that, like for us, has meant we could build a 
much faster growing, much larger business than we probably would have. And, you know, that's definitely not true of, of all businesses that are, you know, kind of start with our approach, but it does let you build a stronger business if you, if you make it that far. You know, I, I will say now, like 10 years down the road, it creates a great dynamic of like, you know, since then we've raised a bunch of venture money. We have, you know, a real board and kind of very experienced venture investors on that board. And the dynamic is just different because the the company is different. Uh, because we haven't been on that venture treadmill for as long, it gives us a lot more kind of control to really build the company that we want to build, even now that we have investors on board. And, and it, when you started out, uh, when you started out the company with your co-founder, did you guys know eyes wide open? Hey, our goal is to build a huge venture scale, quote unquote, company, even though we're going to take a different approach? Or was it, hey, we don't know, let's preserve optionality. Maybe we want to keep this small and, and closely held. We'll see. Yeah, I think we were ambitious, meaning our goal was to build a monumental company, but we were also quite humble about it. So we were going to keep trying until we built that company. And if, and if the company we built ended up being smaller, like we would have felt good about it, but we didn't feel a need to kind of put ourselves in one bucket. It was, Hey, we're going to work incredibly hard and build something and we're going to be successful. And like, that's what's going to happen. You know, I think the, along the path, like it was very common for everyone else to be like, Oh, you didn't raise venture money. Like you're building a small business. Like, cool. You guys have like a great lifestyle business. And you know, the time it was like, it was incredibly annoying. And like, it was like, Oh, well, because you like didn't raise venture money, you must be less ambitious. And then now we're like, well, Hey, like we're still in business and we're massive. So like, whatever. Uh, but it was hard to, it was hard to combat that. So I, I think that a rephrasing is, you know, are you willing, do you want to burn all the bridges on all the paths that aren't like a billion dollar business? And do you want to say like, Hey, like if it's not a billion dollar business, like I don't want to start it. And and I think we were more pragmatic about it of like, no, we're going to build a successful business. And our aim is a, you know, multi-generational like company that changes the world. But if we end up building a $30 million business, great. We'll start another business in five years or 10 years and we'll keep doing it. And I, and I think part of that was driven by like, hey, look, this will definitely not be the last business we start. And from an entrepreneur standpoint, you know, the if you exit for 5 million versus 10 million, like the first five is certainly like marginally much more valuable to you and giving you freedom to do what you want with your life. And so I think we approached it in that way saying like, Hey, like, you know, any outcome would be great, but let's have huge ambition. And this is so great. I mean, it's so refreshing to hear this. It's something we spend a lot of time with founders on, you know, up front and, and every founder now has been trained to say, I want to go build a billion dollar business. Right. But I think in reality, a lot of them are, are really more pragmatic in the way that you and your your co-founder um, were and are, but but don't really feel like they have permission or role model to follow um, to to execute that. So this is great. Thanks for sharing this with us today, uh, and really excited to have you uh, in in the Colorado community and what you're building with Clavio. Ed, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks a ton. Yep. Thanks, Ed.